Well, good morning. <laughs> I don't think it's been said from the front so far yet, but happy Mother's Day. There we go. I need one woo. Thank you. Is that TJ? I don't think that would have been Samuel, but anyway. Hey, I, I appreciate you guys. Uh, moms, we appreciate you so much. Um, I actually, we actually joke in my house, um, if my wife didn't exist, um, we'd all die. We, we just wouldn't make it through the, <laughs> through the, we wouldn't make it through a week without her. We're just so appreciative of her. So thank you, moms, for all that you do. I also want to say for those of you that have longed to be a mom and that hasn't worked out for you, or that those of you who lost your mom, I lost my mom about 12 years ago. Um, this can also kind of be a, a painful day. So I I just want you to know as a family, we love you too. We recognize um, your suffering and the things that you're going through maybe today also, and that we love you too. Um, so this day is a day of remembrance. It's also a day of celebration. And so moms, we just want to make sure that you knew that we, we love you. A um, couple things before we move on. One is I want to just remind you of the end of the year party at um, Williams here on May 20th. It, they're calling it a festival because we're going to get the party trailer and do it, do it right. In the past, these things have been huge, but um, again, we're kind of still re- rebuilding from the COVID area, uh, COVID era. So May 20th, I just want you to mark it on your calendars now. I think Brandon probably even announced it at the end, but mark it on your calendars now. I would love it if basically the whole church showed up to that on May 20th and just got to celebrate. It'll be in the evening at five, like five to seven, and we'll have all kinds of games and things. But really what it's meant to be is a time for us to meet people in the community, begin to build relationships. Um, as I always say, it's got to start with you. It's got to start with your family, with your neighbors, where you are. But also God has given us mission fields to go to, right? He, he, Samaria, Judea and to the ends of the world, right? And so this is going to be our place where we can actually do mission work in Springfield um, in our area. So uh, would love for you to, to join us in that. And then lastly, I've, I hate to start with bad news, but I've got bad news. I mean, it. this is bad news. Um, anybody seen the walls out in the hall, how they're all cracked? Rhonda, have you noticed? <laughs> She's never noticed. Well, um, whoever's fault it is, we don't know, right? But the walls around the whole building are cracking, and so they got to replace them. And they thought, they kind of told us originally, they thought they'd kind of work around us, but it's going to be a bigger job. They're going to have to bring down parts of the ceiling. It's going to be a construction zone, so we got to be out for two months. So from June 1st to July 31st, Jason assures me he thinks they can get it done in two months. <laughs> I'll just stress you on that one, man, um, that they can get that done in two months and then we'll be back in. And so the school actually bent over backwards for us. They, Miss Dessa felt so bad. She's, they basically said, you can use any school um, and we won't charge you more. We'll continue the contract wherever we can. But I checked a couple schools close to here and they had old gyms like Williams that were just too small, too old, no storage, no place to go. So um, I didn't want to necessarily do the easiest thing, but it ended up being the best thing. We're going to go back to freeway for two months. So June and July, we'll be back at Freeway. Um, We'll transition there, and then we'll just transition right um, back. I would say, as discouraging as that was, um, how bad Miss Dessa and Miss Hoff felt about it when they talked to Sarah and I um, was actually, I don't know if this sounds weird, but that was actually really encouraging um, because they so badly wanted it to work out for us, and they so badly wanted us to be here, um, but um, it didn't work out. So just plan from June 1st uh, to July 31st, we're going back to Freeway, and if you're new here today and you haven't been Freeway, we'll put up the address and get it on the website and do all of that. Um, But just plan um, the Sunday after June, we'll be back in Freeway. 
All right, I think that is all of my pre-sermon announcements, so let me jump in, because today um, is really a, a major turning point in the book of John. And if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. We're just going through verse by verse of the entire book. And, and Jesus really today begins his first real steps towards the fulfillment of his Father's plan for redemption. He takes his first steps towards the, the cross. And so what we're going to see is Jesus, in, the, in chapter 10, he left Judea, that's the area that has Jerusalem. He left that area. Um, he went somewhere else, but he's going to come back to Judea in our story today. He's going to start heading back that way, and he'll never leave again. He'll never leave this area again. He is moving towards what he, he came to accomplish for the sake of his father. And so, if you haven't been with us before last week, what we saw in the last few chapters before we got to where we are today is Jesus really made, started making pretty clear who he was. He was going around claiming to have authority that only God has, authority over things like the forgiveness of sin. Um, authority over creation, authority over the law, even authority over those who have eternal life. He said, only those who come through me will have eternal life. So in short, he's been claiming to be God with the, the authority that he's been claiming to have. And if we, if we had any doubt of that, if, if you remember the way chapter 10 ended, he basically claimed these things once again, and they picked up stones to kill him. Right? They thought it was as, as big a blasphemy as you could possibly communicate. I have the authority of God. I am equal to God. I am, in, I am God. And so they wanted to kill him for it. And so that, well, that marks kind of a major turning point in this book. And what I mean by that is if you remember back to chapter 1, that just absolutely beautiful intro to John. I don't know if you've read it since we went through it, but it's just, it's one of my favorite parts of scripture where it talks about Jesus as the word of God, as the light of, of the world, as the bread of life. And right after that beautiful intro where the book really begins is with the ministry of John the Baptist, right? And we see John the Baptist, he says, I've come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And we even see John baptize Jesus. And that's really where this section of scripture, like the ministry of Jesus really began. Well, at the end of chapter 10 last week, what we saw is Jesus went back across the Jordan, left Judea, went back across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist did his ministry. And when he got there, people remembered the words of John the Baptist. They remembered his words and his works preparing the way, saying he was preparing the way for Christ. And then Jesus comes back and they hear the words and the works of Christ and the people there believe. John prepared the way, Jesus returned, and they believed. Jesus came back to the place where it all started and really started building his first disciples beyond the 12. Salvation had come. And that's where we really wrap up the section of John where Jesus is wandering around Israel sharing about the kingdom of God coming. And so today we see Jesus again take his first steps to what some people call the passion of the Christ. I don't know if you know what that really means, but passion in Latin means suffering. And so he starts moving towards the time that he is going to suffer on behalf of all mankind, his journey towards the cross. And so he's told his, his disciples many times that his time had not yet come. My time has not yet come. But as he returns to Judea for the sake of his friend Lazarus and his family, Jesus knows the time is drawing near. The time is drawing to a close. His, his collision course with his destiny is, is really being set in motion. And so what we're going to see, and, and, and Robert kind of introduced us to it today, is, is Jesus is going to, he's going to Bethany, to Judea, to undo the death of his beloved friend. But what he's really doing is walking towards his death so that he can undo the curse for all mankind. That's what's really happening here. And so today's the beginning of that long journey. 
And I say that, I say it's a long journey because we're only in chapter 12 and we're going to chapter 21, but really the last half of this book is about Jesus moving towards the cross. And I love the story today because it's centered around um, this family that scripture says that Jesus loved dearly. Like not in the big God loves everyone kind of way, and he does, yes and amen, but he loved this family dearly. And as we read the story, I don't know if you picked up on it, if you read it kind of out of context, if you don't really read it knowing who Jesus is and what his mission, what Jesus says can seem a little flippant. It can even seem a, a, a little callous because when he hears about his desperately sick friend and he knows the pain that's going to cause if, if he's lost, yet when he hears that, he, he waits. And so we're going to dive into that today because here's what I want you to see at the end. Although that truth it c- could be hard, it's an absolutely beautiful truth. And that, that truth that leads us to that, that God uses our suffering to proclaim his glory. God uses our suffering to proclaim his glory, and then he uses our suffering also to weave his glory deep down into our soul. And that's what we're going to see him begin to do today. And as difficult as that can be at times, to see how God is using suffering for his glory and for our benefit, that's exactly what God is going to do today, or he's going to begin to show us that he does that today. And really, for, for us to really grasp that, for us to really see it, we need to make it through most of the chapter, and we're just kind of introducing that in the chapter today. But by the end of this, I really hope that you're going to be able to grasp that and see that. And if you're suffering right now, that it would give you some hope and some peace. So with that intro, let's read again in chapter 11, verse 1. This time we'll just read through verse 4. Chapter 11, 1 through 4. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And Bethany, by the way, is not that far away from Jerusalem at all. The village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So John introduces us to this family of Lazarus, like Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And it's interesting because, I don't know if you noticed, he talks about um, them like we already know them like we've already been introduced to them. But, but really what he's talking about where Mary anoints Jesus and, and wipes his feet with her hair, that doesn't come till chapter 12. That's actually next chapter. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But he introduces them like we already know them. And so there's, there's probably one or two explanations or maybe a little bit of both of these explanations. One, it could be um, because I don't know if you remember from the beginning, John was written, most likely written decades after the other gospels after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So by this time, there's probably a little bit of an assumption, particularly for Christians or even Jews, that they had heard of this story, that they had read this story. And within that too, this could have actually been a really famous story. I mean, we're still reading about it today, right? So it is a famous story, but even among the people, it may have been a famous story that people talked about. Because what we're going to see next week is what what Mary was really doing is that she anointed Jesus in, that, in those days when, they anoint, when somebody was going to be buried, they would anoint them with oil. And so really what Mary is doing is foreshadowing, is pointing to Jesus' burial, that he's going to die, and she's kind of preparing him for that. But we'll get into that when we get to chapter 12. So the story was probably really well known, so John could say this and, and assume that people knew. At the same time, or this may have been also, or this may be the reason he did this, um, there was an assumption that, this, that people that were going to read this weren't going to read it one time. 
that this was going to be the kind of book, I mean, a book about the life of Jesus that people would read again and again, and they would study again and again, just like most of us in this room have, right? Most of us have read John more than once if we've been a Christian for, for, for a longer period of time, right? So there's an assumption that people would study this, and this would be something they would discover along the way. But for whatever reason John did this, he introduces this family here and kind of references them, but then jumps right in, and then he jumps right in. So the sisters of Lazarus sinned for Jesus. And I've always loved, I don't know why, it's just always stuck with me. I've always loved how they refer to Lazarus. Lazarus, he whom you love is ill. In verse five, it says Jesus loved Mary and Martha. And I've always just, I've always just loved that. I always just loved the idea of your name forever being in the word of God, that Jesus loved you specifically. Because again, yes, and amen, he loves all of us, but this is a very personal thing. These are his friends. These are, are his people. And, and here, I think that's valuable to us because sometimes I think when we think of Jesus, we kind of think of this like impersonal God, this larger than life figure back in 2,000 years ago in the New Testament that he's our God and he's our Messiah and he's Lord and yes and amen to all that. But it's moments like this that, that remind us that yes, he is our Lord and yes, he is our God, but he was also a man. He also is a man. A man that loved not just all of humanity, but loved people deeply and really personally. Listen, picture Jesus like, these are the kind of people that Jesus sat around the dinner table with, and they had dinner together, and they laughed together, and they shared stories, man, and they supported each other when, when things were difficult, that they'd wrap their arms around each other. Like, Jesus had relationships like that with people, and this is one of those relationships, people that Jesus loved dearly, that he was close to, like his disciples. But I, I'm just, I just want to know, do you ever think of Jesus like that? Because yes, I primarily want you to think of Jesus as your Lord, as your King, as your Savior, as the one sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf if you are saved through Jesus Christ. But, it, but Scripture also describes Jesus as our friend. And I think as Christians, sometimes that sounds cheesy. I, maybe for me, just because I grew up with that song, Jesus is my friend. Have you ever seen that? It's, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Stand up and sing it. No, just joking. Don't stand up and sing it. It's awful. It's super cheesy. But like, Scripture literally describes him as our friend. Listen, as our brother, as our family, Lord and Savior and King, yes and amen, but also our friend, also our brother, also our family. And through the Holy Spirit, like this is the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. Abide in me is what John 15 is going to say. Abide in me. Spend time with me. Know me. I, Jesus wants you to come with and rejoice with him. He wants you to rejoice in prayer. He wants to come to, come to him with your difficulties. Yes, worship him first, but also come to him that, like he actually cares. Listen, not for just all of humanity, but you. Paul, the Apostle Paul uses the language that God saved us all, but God also, Paul also saved me. God loves all, but he also loves me. Without a relationship with Christ like that, you're never going to know the joy and the peace of having this kind of relationship with your Lord and Savior that was accomplished through the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus finds out that his friend, the one he loves, is sick, Lazarus. And from the context we know, as we go through the passage, he's not just sick, he's really, really sick. They're sending to Jesus in desperation, yet Jesus says something a little bit surprising. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, 
and so that the Son might be glorified. Now, Jesus laid the groundwork for this when he healed the blind man. Remember, there was a man that was born blind from, born blind in John 9, and Jesus healed him. And people thought, man, maybe he was blind because his parents sinned or he sinned. And he says, no, Jesus says, no, his blindness is so that the, the works of God might be displayed. The glory of God might be displayed through him, through his healing, through his blindness and his healing. And so the blind, healing this man from blindness was one of the seven great miracles in the book of John that point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, right? To declare who he is to the world. And the one that we're going to be talking about today and next week, the healing of Lazarus, the next couple of weeks, this is the seventh, this is the last, and really the kind of the culmination of all of these miracles. As, and Jesus here just states plainly what his purpose is. The purpose really of all his miracles, but this one in particular, to declare the glory of God and the glory of the Son. Now, just to be clear, when we talk about to declare the glory, this, this, the language here that's used isn't so, Jesus isn't doing this so that we might glorify him. When I'm saying give him glory, of course we should give God glory. We're going to talk about that in a minute, right? But this is about us seeing, experiencing, knowing the glory of God. That's what this is pointing to. Not us giving glory, but us experiencing, seeing his glory, knowing who God is. This, is, this moment is about Jesus displaying the power, the majesty, the infinite goodness, the glory of God to a watching world. The thing that we talked about so much when we walked through the book of Exodus, that God was showing those people his glory so they might follow him and give their life to him as he declared to them, I am the I am. That's what this moment, this miracle with Lazarus is really about. All of the miracles, but particularly this one, is first and foremost a declaration to the world about who God is and who Jesus is. And the writer of Hebrews says it better than I can, so let me just read that with you. Do we, Robert, do we have Hebrews 1, 3 over there? If you've been coming to Freshwater for any amount of time, you've heard this before. Hebrews 1, 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is described as the, the light of life, as the light of the world, right? Because he is the radiance of the glory of God. Church, memorize that verse. Write it down. Memorize it. That's actually just the first part of the verse. Memorize the whole verse. This is why every week we come back to Jesus. This is why we always come back to the gospel. Because he is the radiance of God's holiness, of his goodness, of his beauty, of his character, of his glory. And it's all displayed through the radiance of Jesus Christ. The one who was and is and is to come. You want to know who God is, we look to the life of Jesus Christ. So these kind of experiences with God and his glory are, of course, meant to draw us into worship and, and, and cause us to be changed by that glory. Yes and amen. But listen, as I said last week, we never start with us. When we're looking to who God is, when we're looking to who we are and looking to like grow in Jesus Christ, we never start with us. We start with him. It always starts with God, who he is, what he has done for he is glorious. That's where we get in trouble, church, when we focus on us, when we start with us and how we're not good enough or how we're awesome or with, uh, with, even with our suffering, when we start there, we lose our way because this is about God and who he is. So as we read the rest of this passage... As we read the rest of this chapter, remember that, that everything that is happening is not primarily pointing to us or primarily even pointing to Lazarus and his family, but is pointing to the glory of God and his son so that their glory might be known. 
And then, hopefully by the end of today, you will see that, that even if it means suffering, that's exactly what we want our lives to do, declare the glory of God. But we'll get to that in a minute. Keep reading with me in verse 5. John 11, verse 5, we'll read through verse 10. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I want to read 5 and 6 one more time. Look what this actually says. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus so because he loved them. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Let's stop there. So we know that Jesus deeply loved this family and that Lazarus is sick to the point of death. Yet Jesus hears the dire news and he waits two more days before he heads that way. Does that seem kind of off? Does it feel off to anyone? Well, did you see how that it implies that he waited because he loves them? His waiting is a reflection of his love for them, even though Lazarus is deathly sick. Again, it says he loves them, so he waited two days longer. How could that be a reflection of his love for them? Well, we can see from the disciples' reaction, the disciples were were hoping and basically telling Jesus that you can't go back, right? They're like, remember the Jews want to kill you. They want to stone you. So the disciples don't want him to go back, period, because Bethany's not too, way, not too far away from Jerusalem at, at all. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' concern. So he uses the, the metaphor of the day and the night to point to why he doesn't have to worry about going back, to, to why they shouldn't be afraid. He says, you know, he uses the, the day as the day of work. There's a 12 hours in a day, and especially back in the ancient time before electricity. That's when everybody did the work, right? So they get their work done during the day, and then at the night they would rest. At the night they would stop their work. And so Jesus using that as a reflection is that he is the light of the world. Right now, we are still walking on the mission. The, the light is still here. We will continue to do the work, and we don't have to fear because I, we are walking in the Father's will. My time hasn't come yet, but when my time does come, when the darkness comes, which the darkness is the cross, when the time of the cross comes, the work will stop. We'll stop then, but right now we don't stop. And right now we don't need to fear because we're walking in the will of the Father. I am the light of the world. Follow me. And so they do. And so they're going to go. And so they don't have to fear. But back to the point, why is he waiting to return to Bethany and his friends that so desperately need him when he can do something about it? They've seen him do something about sickness. They know he can put an end to it, but it doesn't seem that he's going to. Keep reading in verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go 
that we may die with him. Seems like at this point, at least, the disciple Thomas is ready to live up to the phrase, take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't even know what that means yet, but he's ready to go and die with Jesus if that's necessary. But Jesus says something in verse 11 that's kind of prophetic. He says, we go to our friend, but I go to awaken him. You see the subtlety of that, but we are going, but I go to awaken him. Again, they just think that, that Lazarus might be asleep, but they can awaken him. But he's making it clear that he can awaken Lazarus from this, but the disciples can't. So he's pointing to the truth that Lazarus is dead, even though the disciples don't catch it. So Jesus makes it clear for them. He just states it plainly. Lazarus has died while we delayed. Jesus then says something that at, at first reading, this is kind of what I was started off with, that, that can at first reading be kind of a little hard to understand. He says, he, is, he has died, and for your sake, I am glad we were not there. He's dead, and I'm glad that, you, that we were not there so that you may believe. Now, if we don't fully understand Christ's purpose, if we don't understand his mission, if we don't understand the context of the whole story, this can seem a little bit harsh. It could even seem a little bit, a little bit callous, a little bit unloving. Oh, but church, it's just, it's the exact opposite of unloving. It's the exact opposite of callous. Next week, we're going to see that the death of Lazarus was so devastating for his sisters and Mary and the entire village of Bethany that when Jesus comes back, they all are just weeping together over the loss of their dear friend. Lazarus was beloved, obviously from the context of this whole story. He was a beloved guy. His family was beloved, but not only that, he was beloved to Jesus himself. His name is named as someone that, Jesus, that is one of Jesus's beloved. So how can he say, how can Jesus say, I am glad, I'm glad that I wasn't there to save him when he could have stopped them from so much suffering, so much hurt. Church, there's something in us that when we see suffering, when we experience suffering, not, not only do we want to get away from it, right? I don't, none of us likes to suffer. And believe me, the sermons today is not like, hey, you should enjoy your suffering. That's not, that's not the point of this, right? But we want to get away from our suffering, but there's something in us that it just feels wrong, doesn't it? Even on TV, you see, like, I don't know if you remember the, the commercials with, who was that that used to sing those songs with the dogs? Right? The, the, the adoption dogs, and they sing that, in the arms of the angels. And they put up dogs, like, basically dying, and like, come away. And, like, you see the suffering of the dog, and like, that's not Right? Right, but here, like that's, so that's manipulation, right? But like even when we see friends or family or somebody suffering, it doesn't feel right. It feels wrong, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like it should be that way. You know why? Because it shouldn't be that way. When God created the world all the way back in Genesis, it wasn't that way. Everything was perfect. Our relationship were perfect. Our relationship with nature was perfect. And then Adam and Eve sinned and it fractured everything. And when they sinned, it brought evil into the world. And with evil came death, came suffering. The reason it doesn't feel right is because it's not right. Jesus promises that one day he's going to come back and he's going to undo that curse. And on that day, there will be no more sin. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain and suffering. But until that day, suffering is a part of this world because sin and death is a part of this world. Listen, that's the, you know, that's main, one of the main things that unites everybody on the planet, no matter where you came from, your background, your race, your socioeconomic status, we are all at some point going to suffer. We're going to suffer. And God doesn't tell us we won't suffer. 
I'm going to say something a little bold. So no matter what those prosperity gospel heretics try to say to you that suffering is not a part of this world, they are liars. They are speaking evil. Because Lazarus suffered, and all of the disciples suffered, and Paul suffered, and more than anything else, Jesus Christ suffered for the glory of God. Do not listen to liars who want to make you feel good. God wants you to have joy and peace in every good thing in this world, but he doesn't promise we won't suffer. And there's a reason for that. And the story of Lazarus, more specifically, the suffering of his family, shows, well, in the end, will really show us this clearly, that there is suffering in this world and that God has a purpose. Jesus allowed, don't, don't mishear, don't misread this. Jesus is allowing this suffering to happen when he could have put a stop to it. Why did he do that? Praise God that God doesn't want us to wonder. He gives us the answer for his glory and because he loves us. He waited on healing Lazarus because he loved them. Let me explain how that works. We already know, we already saw from the passage that Jesus said he is doing this. This is the main reason, to declare his Father's glory and his own glory so that they might be glorified for who they are. Yes and amen. That is at the heart of it, but that's not all of it. Verse 15 says that he is glad that Lazarus died before he made it to him. Why? So that you might believe. So that you might believe. Jesus is allowing suffering so that, they, so that they might not just see the glory of God, but by seeing the glory of God, they might be saved by the glory of God. By receiving the glory of God within them, they might be saved. That's the goal of this whole thing. Even the suffering is so that people might not just see God's glory, but take, take on God's glory through believing in Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God, and be saved. But listen, our God, our God is so good, he doesn't stop there. When we experience the glory of God and are saved by the glory of God, for the, we are transformed by the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 3, it's talking about Moses. And that Moses wore a veil you remember that story? Moses wore a veil because he'd go up into the presence, into the glory of God. Hey, stay with me for a second. No, it's by me. Stay with me for a second. He'd go up with the, and, and he would be in the presence of God. He would experience face to face the glory of God. And when he would come down back off the mountain, his face would literally glow, radiate with the glory of God, which is what Jesus Christ does for us now. He's the light of the world. It was pointing towards Jesus. He would radiate with the glory of God and it freaked people out. So he'd wear a veil. But when he'd go back up into God's presence, with God in his glory, he'd take the veil off and he would just radiate with the glory of God. And that's the context we bring into 2 Corinthians 3. Because now you are, in, you are in Christ, only Moses could go up to the mountain into the glory of God. But now, because of the Holy Spirit within us, because we've been saved and made righteous, righteous by Jesus Christ, we can come into the glory of God with confidence. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Church, by experiencing the glory of God, because he loves us, we experience, we see, we encounter the glory of God. And then by believing and giving our lives for the sake of the glory of God, we are transformed by the glory of God to be more like the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus Christ. 
That is how God works this. It's not about you being a good person. It's about you seeing God's glory, his holiness, his goodness, being drawn to it, accepting it, as accepting Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God, and then God will begin to transform you one step, another, building more and more of his glory in, in you so that you might reflect his radiance, Jesus Christ. His glory rising and rising in you as he sanctifies us until the day we are fully glorified in heaven. We are perfected. And on that day, we will celebrate and we will worship who he is and what he has done in us as he built his glory into us for the sake of his glory forever. That's what I think we're going to do in heaven. Celebrate God for who he is. Cry out, holy, holy, holy. Celebrate his glory. See his glory. Know his glory. And then we're going to sit around. Like, heaven's described as a banquet table. I think we're going to have bodies, perfected bodies. We're going to sit around. I think we're going to eat together. And we're going to sit around the table of God. And we're going to celebrate all the things that God did in our lives for his glory. Not because we're great. Because look out. Remember how Jesus used me? Do you remember what he did in my life? Do you remember how, that, like, that person, that, I didn't even know this, but I shared the gospel with that person. And then they shared it with another person. And that person got saved. I didn't even know that. Look what God does. I think that's what we're going to do in heaven. And just be blown away at how good God is and how he built his glory into us even when we didn't realize it for the sake of his kingdom and the advancement of his gospel. In John 11, Christ's glory will be displayed through Lazarus. Yes and amen. But church, it's just a shadow. It's just a whisper of the day when the true glory of God is going to display through the death of his son. Christ's truest glory will not be found in returning this man to life, but by giving his life for all mankind. Christ's, hear me, Christ's glory primary, primarily displayed, most clearly displayed through his suffering. And because of that, so often God's glory is most clearly seen in us and grown in us through suffering. 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 21 says this, for to this you have been called. Real quick, church, whenever you see that in scripture, for to this you have been called, you don't really need to pray over that anymore. This is saying this is the will of God. This is the will of God for your life, right? So whenever you see that in scripture, I said that to the other day when it was like, do we go out and share the gospel with people? Like, well, should I go share the gospel with this person? I need to pray about that. Why are you praying about it? We are called to go make disciples. We are called to share the gospel. That's not something you need to pray about. You need to pray maybe like God would give you the words and the opportunity and the, and the place to be able to share the gospel with other people, but we don't really need to pray whether we should share the gospel with other people. We're just supposed to go. This is one of those things. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Our suffering is not a mistake. And hear this too, it's not a sign of God's disfavor. Now, here's the reality. Sometimes we bring suffering on ourselves, don't we? Through our own sin, through our own self-righteousness, through our own choices, through our own selfishness, we can bring so much suffering on ourselves. In fact, in most of our lives, we've done that again and again, haven't we? I've had conversations like this many times, and I totally get it, but listen, if you overdrink your entire life and then your liver shuts down, that is not God's curse on your life. That was you, in your life, you chose sin over the Lord again and again and again. And there's consequences to that, right? In the brokenness of this world, that's just the reality. 
Now, that doesn't mean that God can't have grace and mercy in that situation for you, but that's not God cursing you. That's you making a choice to choose sin over the Lord, and it goes badly. So yes, sometimes our suffering is a consequence for our choices, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's sin done to us, where our suffering comes from. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Sometimes it's suffering done to us. And and listen, sometimes it's just the fallenness of this world, that that sin and suffering is still a part of this world. So sometimes just the world and and the fact that there's sin in the world and there's suffering in the world tries to crush us. That, Like through the death of someone you love, through sickness, through mental illness, through pain. Our suffering is real. And so often it's really hard to understand. So I want you to hear me today, church. This is not a sign. If you're suffering today, it is not a sign of God being against you. In fact, it could be the opposite. And listen, I've, I've heard people who at least I, I at least thought were mature Christians who understand the gospel when they've gone through desperate suffering, saying, why is God doing this to me? What have I done wrong? What do I need to do differently? What do I need to change so that God will take this away from me? Sometimes in our suffering, God is trying to point us to something, but it's not God cursing you. It's not a sign that God is against you. And I'm speaking to believers here. In fact, again, it could be the opposite. Maybe he's trying to use your pain to show you his glory. And then maybe through that, he's trying to build a weight of glory rooted so deeply down within you, so connected to your soul, so connected to your very being, so connected to the Holy Spirit within you, connecting that to your soul, that no matter what this life throws at you, no matter what this life throws at you, if you are a Christian, you might know that he is enough. That your father is enough, whether it seems like it right now or not, that he is enough. His glory in you, working to transform you so that you might know this is true. Maybe, maybe, just maybe God will use your suffering so that you might find the depthless well of Christ's joy and peace that has already been purchased for you on the cross and by the power of the resurrection. Because I think there's a lot of Christians out there that don't really understand the kind of peace and joy that the Lord has for them, no matter what this life is going through. What if God even used suffering so that you might grasp it more fully? You know, when my, um, I haven't talked about this in a long time, but when my dad died of cancer in the late 90s, man, I was lost. I, I was lost. The suffering at times, like, right, the suffering at times just felt like it was just too much. And so as silly as this might sound, there was a Christian group that none of you have ever heard of called Soul Support. S-O-U-L, support. Cheesy, right? But this group, during that time, when I was much more immature Christian, were an endless comfort to me in a time that I could not find comfort. Have you ever had a song like that? That on the right day, at the right time, just hits you right right in the place that you needed, like God just use it, because God uses scripture like that all the time for me, but for this time, it was a song, and it was a couple songs that just spoke to my soul. Listen, I I wanted God to take my suffering. I was begging for him to take away my suffering. I, I wanted to know why he allowed my dad and my best friend to be taken away from me. 
17, 16, 17, 18 year, 19 year old self just couldn't understand it. And so I just felt like I was just waiting there for God to, to change it, to help me. And then I heard a song called, I Waited There. And it was about someone else's suffering and how they were just asking God, could, could you see me in my suffering while I wait here? Uh, like, while I pray to you, I try to get you to answer my prayers. Can you see me as I'm waiting here, Lord? And here, here's what the, what the song actually said. It said, I waited there. Yes, I waited there for the dawning of the day when the Lord would take this pain from me. And he would set me free while I waited there. Oh, and how I prayed that my trials were not in vain, that his plan would be complained to see. Could he see me while I waited there? And then I realized I was not alone. The things that I thought I needed were not the things he wanted to see. He waited there for me. He waited there for me to come, to fully rest upon him and to draw him close to me. And now I found my resting place. I await his words and I seek his face because he is all I need. Church, I can't tell you, it's like making me emotional now. I can't tell you how much that, that meant to me, that, that God had not abandoned me, that he was there, that I, I felt like I was waiting on God, but he was waiting on me to see his glory, to know who he was, to, so that I might know that he's enough. Church, until you need God to be enough, you will never truly realize that he actually is. I know that so, I so know that to be true. You won't know until you know. And so whether you're suffering right now and you're going through it now or whether you suffer in the future because that's the thing we all have in common. You will suffer again. Just know that God has not left you. That it is not pointless. That he would never ab abandon you. Do not run from it. Because even in our suffering, we can run to our sin. We can run and make our suffering an idol, can't we? We can become defined by our suffering. And so who we are is the suffering that we've been through and we set God on the shelf and this becomes who we are. No, God says, in your suffering, turn to me because I'm enough. Read Romans 5. He's trying to build into you his character, his perseverance. So that Romans 5 says, so that you might never lose hope. Never lose hope because the love of God has been poured into your hearts. God wants you to know he is enough. He loves you enough to allow you to suffer at times so that you might find out that he actually is enough and then be transformed by his glory, by his son, and so that you might bear his image, transforming you, building a weight of glory into you, being transformed by that so you are conformed more and more and more into the image of his son church, that is love. And at times it doesn't feel like love, but God seeing his children who he loves and adores will let them suffer at times so they might discover this unbelievable truth, so they might know he is enough and ha truly have his joy, his peace, his hope that can't be taken away from you. That church is one of the most loving things that God could do for us. Use whatever he must to save us and then draw us into his glory, which is enough for us. This is what we're, he's going to show us through the story of this family, through his friends and disciples. I pray that through it, by the end of it, he'll show us all the same. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you that you did not make our faith about us, about what we have or haven't done, but about you. 
you who are holy, who are righteous, who never fails, who never gives up, who never abandons. God, thank you that you are drawing us into your glory that will never fail. God, I pray for those who are suffering today. Whether they're in the midst of it, they're coming out of it, or they're entering into it, God, suffering is it's so difficult to see and hear and move forward with a clear mind, a clear heart, a clear spirit. Yet, God, you obviously know this to be true because you talk about it so much in your word. God, I pray that you would help us, that you would teach us, that you would train us to come to you in our suffering, to come to the family of God in our suffering that can support us, and that you would use that, use that to display even more of who you are to us, that we might worship you more deeply, that your glory might be rooted deeper into us, that you might move us from one glory to another, becoming more like your son until we are fully glorified one day. And then, God, for the rest of us in this room, I pray that, that we wouldn't waste our suffering. That we wouldn't waste our pain because the one thing that we all have in common in this room, for sure, is that we are going to suffer and that we can use your faithfulness in our suffering to help encourage others. To help them not give up hope. To help them draw to you and realize that you are enough. God, this is a difficult thing. And so we pray that you'd be with us and that you would help us. More than anything, God, I pray that you draw us into worship so that we would know truly who you are and that, that that would change us for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory. We pray this all in the name of the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus Christ. Amen.